0: What is up? I'm Miguel Antonio, and you are listening to the Live and Create podcast. It's where I interview artists and entrepreneurs about what it means to live a great life and create great things. And before we jump into today's episode, I want to encourage you to check out my band, Run With It, at Run With It Band, TikTok, Snapchat, Twitter, all the places you follow people at. You can also check us out, runwithitband.net. That's runwithitband.net. And on today's episode, we have Todd Scatini. Todd is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel with 27 years of service. He is a former enlisted soldier and a West Point graduate. He spent a career as an armor and cavalry officer in service as a military diplomat in six European countries, Germany, Belgium, France, Czech Republic, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Slovenia. His time and service included numerous deployments to Afghanistan and one in Kosovo. Upon retiring in January of 2018, Todd threw all of his energy and efforts into the legalization of medical cannabis with a specific focus on gaining access for veterans. He is the CEO of Harvest 360, a full-service cannabis consulting company responsible for winning dozens of licenses across the country. Harvest 360 looks at the re-legalization of cannabis as a paradigm shift and an opportunity to address many of the issues created by cannabis prohibition. Todd is an activist currently serving on the advisory board of the Kansas Cannabis Coalition and the Veterans Action Council, and previously on the Missouri Cannabis Trade Association. He is also an adjunct professor at St. Louis University in their cannabis science and policy program. He lives in the middle of the country on the border between legal cannabis access and harshly punished criminalized marijuana there in Platte City, Missouri. He is married with two sons and a golden doodle. On today's podcast, Todd shares his journey from private to officer and then to cannabis activist and entrepreneur. We talk about the power of building partnerships to affect real change and grow effective businesses, as well as the life-changing effects medical cannabis can have in people's lives. He also shares how he was mentored in the art of crafting words and vision casting by generals who are literally working to keep countries together. It's a great episode. Enjoy.
1: The Live and Create podcast. Well, today? Yeah, man. Rock and roll. They're ready, ready to go. Uh, you know, every day is a good day. Every day that no one shoots at you is a good day. You learn that very quickly.
0: <laughs> that, from your uh, first career, uh, if if we could call it that, you probably learned that that powerful, powerful lesson. Every day is a yeah, good day. Really shooting, shooting you. at you. Changes your perspective on life in terms of like what's a good day, and what's a bad day. So in a sense, it's kind of the same philosophy we learned from early gangster rap. Like any day you didn't have to use your AK is a good day. Exactly. Thing, right. Exactly. <laughs> Although I mean, I have a serious,
1: uh, you know, uh, concern with that because he said like this day Mama cooked no hog, and uh, you know, I think every day that we have bacon is pretty good day.
0: Hell yes, hell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my holdups on not becoming a vegan. Um, like the the, I am fascinated by the vegan lifestyle just because there's so much. Well, there are ways to be vegan without being healthy, right? But in, yeah. in a lot of ways, the ones I know who are, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the ones I I know are very extremely healthy. But yeah, I love bacon. Oh my god, it's like we're like a two three pound bacon family at minimum if if we're having it. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Everything
1: is better with bacon. It's on my family crest. You know, we're very big fans, but I understand, you know, there are obviously health uh, concerns and, and obviously religious restrictions on the, uh, on, on consumption of pork products. But uh, well, you that's know, true. But house-
0: I, yeah. I need a level of fat in my yeah, diet probably. and I have no religious restrictions as far as that goes. So, <laughs> well, Hey man, you have had an incredible like diverse career, you've you've gone all over the place, you know, and uh, and for for the podcast listeners, I've I've had the privilege of us, you know, sharing wine, sharing edibles, and and getting to hear your story. But I wonder, could you just unpack a little bit how you go from twenty seven years in the military, mm-hmm. colonel in the military, if I if I'm correct, and then you find yourself now uh, launching a business in the cannabis industry and becoming an activist within cannabis, uh, really worldwide, but focused here in the U.S. Yeah. But yeah, just share us, uh, share a little bit of that story for the listeners.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, my you know, my whole Army career started uh, at 19 years old, um, shortly after I uh, filled out of community college. And wreck my car, and you know, as a 19 year old kid, you think you know everything, um, and I, I just certainly didn't. I had no direction, so I enlisted in the army in 1990. Uh, for our local listeners, you know, I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, for my basic training. Uh, and then back to the Defense Language Institute in California, because my job in the Army was to be a signal interceptor, essentially listen to uh, radio transmissions of the Warsaw Pact and uh, translate them, and you know be prepared for for uh, a war. Uh, so I learned Czech and Slovak while I was uh, a private in the Army. Uh, and then I was uh, luckily accepted to this this uh, school called the West Point Prep School, which is a military school run by the Army. Uh, Small school, do,
0: right? A, a real not well known. Not, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: kind of well known, but not a lot of people know about the prep school, right? Oh, okay, so it's different. Correct. Yeah. The West Point Ah. Prep School is this uh, really awesome program that the Army puts on where they take 150 enlisted soldiers and 150 civilians that maybe, you know, didn't have the grades or something to to go into West Point. Um, And then they put us into this school for a year and they basically bring up our our leadership scores, bring up uh, our SAT and ACT scores, and prepare us for college life and it's a year-long competition essentially to get an appointment to the academy uh through this school and uh I, it, it was a it was just a huge moment in my life to be accepted there and to get a second chance at uh oh the with the the wizard is is, is
0: showing. <laughs> yeah my my dog broke through there <laughs> <laughs>
1: no problem. No. So West Point prep school is really, you know, this opportunity for for someone to have a second chance. You know, I didn't do that great in high school, but then I went to the West Point prep school, crushed it, got accepted to the academy, went there, majored in Russian and German. Uh, and then I was commissioned as an armor officer. Right. So tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles. And so I served. For the first decade of my career, um, I I spent time uh, commanding platoons in Fort Riley, Kansas, and then uh, to Germany, where I served in the cavalry. Uh, We were the division cavalry squadron for the First Infantry Division. Right, red one. Big Red One. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So you're familiar, you know, growing up in Junction City and around Fort Riley uh, with with the Big Red One. Um, So after I commanded a cavalry troop, you know, 150 men, uh, you know, 19 Bradley fighting vehicles and and a bunch of tanks and all this stuff, uh, I became a foreign area officer. Right. Which is a special type of officer that the army trains to be a strategic advisor to uh, ambassadors, general officers, uh, serve on international military staffs at the NATO level uh, and do, th- do things of that nature right. So to understand you know foreign policy and how uh, the United States projects power right with their, with their, all of their elements of power, diplomacy, information, the military and through economics, we're seeing those uh, those being deployed now uh, very well, right? That's what Um, I was thinking
0: as you were saying that, uh, like I'm on another podcast because I'm sure it's like a four hour thing, but just picking your brain on Ukraine and Russia and then, you know, even recently Afghanistan and the pullout. But but that'll have to be another conversation another time. But
1: yeah, well, I mean, so it's it's fascinating. You you, you bring up Afghanistan, which is really where my uh, journey into cannabis began. Um, because you know, I was serving as a foreign area officer, uh, by, by this point, could we pause for just a moment. I gotta get, my dog is like desperately trying. Both to of get our it.
0: dogs are, are messing with the podcast. You <laughs> should have a special dog
1: podcast, a dog cast. There you Hold go. on. <laughs> yeah. On the next dog cast, we'll talk about how needy golden doodles are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we can host it at a bar K drink some beer Here we and go. lament Here we go. Yeah. all well, of our dogs are <laughs> you can be musical entertainment man that'd be Hell fantastic yeah. um
1: yeah so uh, uh so as a foreign area officer right? i uh, i served in the czech republic where i went to their their equivalent of the the command and general staff college all in czech uh and then i served as the uh the exchange officer to the Belgian army for two years. And with them, I I did my first uh, deployment to Afghanistan. Uh, I served in Bosnia as the army attache, right? So in Bosnia and Herzegovina, a very complex environment, uh, you know, post-conflict space. This was in 2011 and 2012. Uh, I also served as the uh, liaison officer to the French army for two years, Hmm. uh, living in Paris. And and that was really fascinating because it was during that time that I deployed to Afghanistan on uh, an individual tasker where I had been asked by the commander of the International Security Assistance Forces to come out and assist with the uh, relationship with the coalition, right? The Mm -hmm. largest military coalition that has ever existed, 50 nations, right? To include the then 28 NATO allies. Yeah. Uh, as well as, well as uh, you know, another twenty-two um, folks who had signed up to come to Afghanistan, and and, and that i love the
0: second tour for you. That was my yeah, that was In my second tour, correct? Okay,
1: yeah. Which was, but it was fascinating. This was you know really seeing how the sausage is made. Um, both at the U.S. level as well as the international level, um, you know, for six months I got to sit behind the ISAF commander, you know, who's essentially the Eisenhower of of uh, this particular campaign in Afghanistan, wow. and listen to you know a four-star Marine general talk to heads of state, parliamentarians. Uh, you know, chiefs of defense and things of that nature. So, really watching uh, diplomacy and uh, military operations interact with one another—it was just a, a fascinating and very influential time in my life.
0: Um, I can only imagine to to yeah. be in those rooms and, and to actually take part in it. And I yeah. imagine incredible training for, in a way, you know. Obviously, we're we're kind of middle year story right now, but in a way, I almost hear. As you're explaining your story, I hear like all this training ground that is what what you seem to live in now. But so anyways, this is the the second tour of Afghanistan. You're getting the curtains pulled back. You get to see uh, what's going behind the scenes. And uh, what's the next step after that for you? Sure. Well,
1: so that certainly shaped my career. Um, I went back from Afghanistan to, uh, to Paris, uh, served for an additional 18 months there, helping the, the French Army kind of, um, you know, develop their strategy for the future. Um, and, you know, especially in terms of partnership with, uh, with the U.S. and the U.S. Army a uh, very influential and fascinating time of my career i became after that i was the senior defense official and defense attaché in the country of slovenia right small mm-hmm. nato ally former part of yugoslavia you know now an eu member nato ally and uh, just a the most beautiful country and incredible people you've ever seen you know just a fantastic place so um, after that, what I, I, I uh, redeployed to the United States for my my last tour, what would be my last tour, which brought me here uh, to the center of the country. i was I was uh, a, an instructor at the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, where I got to really educate and influence you know an entire generation of young officers and kind of talk to them about my career, uh, how the army, uh, puts together strategy, or how the U.S. the United States puts together strategy, and uh, kind of whittles that down into defense strategy and defense objectives, and and deploys all of that. So it's just an incredible time. I was really proud, though, uh, to finish my career after 27 years. I retired at the beginning of uh, 2018, mm-hmm. and I've been running my own company ever since. Right. Um, I think one key piece, what the the reason that six months in Afghanistan was so influential for me is because it really did kick me off on this cannabis journey, right? Hmm. The general what was it that
0: that grabbed you while you were there. Good question:
1: One question. It was uh, this was, and I I remember it like it was yesterday, uh, because it was December 11th of 2011, right? army is playing navy in football right the army foot army navy football game is a big deal for anyone who went to the academies um and general allen who was the isaf commander at the time was also a naval academy grad and within the small team that i was on about 10 people at least half of us were academy grads either the naval academy or (laughs) weapon Right. So there was a lot of kind of uh you know friendly rivalry in there. So we invited the general Some shit
0: talking happening. Oh yeah,
1: oh yeah, lots of shit talking. Uh, we invited the general to come join us uh for the game, right? The game was going on at like three in the morning in Afghanistan. He didn't stay for that, but he came and he had pizza with us. And anytime you get the boss's ear for you know uh, however long it takes to eat a pizza. Um, is a good time, right? So he asked us all, you know, this one question. He said, "You know, can you guys come up with a really uh, unconventional approach to helping stabilize Afghanistan? You know, you're hmm. really my strategic advisors. You get paid to think uh, big thoughts and, and 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 thoughts that no one else is thinking of." Uh, how can we do this, right? How do we create an economy for Afghanistan? How do we how do we prevent them from sucking off the teat of the international community forever? You know, kind of the they wanted to prevent what happened after uh, the Soviet occupation, right? right? During the Soviet era, when the Soviets left the war in Afghanistan uh, in the eighties, they were paying Afghanistan. To uh, facilitate the Najibullah government. And once the mm-hmm. Soviet Union broke up, the money stopped coming. The Taliban came in, took over. the
0: provider, exactly. Yeah,
1: they slaughtered, slaughtered the the Najibullah government in in uh, despicable ways, and uh, you know installed uh, the Taliban regime. And you know the rest of the story there. Yeah. Um, and so he's like, we don't want to do that. Uh, We also don't want to do something like Plan Colombia, right, where we basically, you know, the the way we addressed the um, drug war in Colombia, we don't want to give them money to buy, you know, for weapons and all of this other stuff. What's a creative way that we could create an industry for them? So I knew they had three resources in abundance, right? They had uh, opium. Yep. But they grow like crazy. <laughs> 99% of the the world's heroin comes out of Afghanistan. At least that was the number that we knew then. I think it's a lot of the cheaper.
0: stories I've I've heard from other veterans usually centered mm. around like heroin or opium as far yeah. as uh, what they were tasked uh, to do. Uh, right. Either, and I don't know what they, they were. Guarding or capturing. So that's a whole other. I think we're fertilizing because honestly, yeah. it's
1: just expanded, you know, both Both the production of opium and hashish, right? Cannabis for hashish had had increased tenfold. Uh, by the time I had gotten there in 2011, right? That's one decade
0: from the time we arrived. You so know. somehow U.S. involvement was good for heroin. Uh, yeah, mean, that's that's <laughs> a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, they also have,
1: so they also have a ton of uh, minerals, like really rare minerals that uh, you know go in our phones. Well, China bought all of them, so that that wasn't a, a possibility. But I knew they had cannabis, right? Tons of cannabis. Um, and, you know, I grew up in California. My grandfather was a farmer and I knew a little bit about, you know, putting a seed in the ground and, 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 and what comes out. And I came up with this idea to, um, to replace their cannabis crops with hemp crops, right? An industrial product that is, you know, uh, can be the source of food, fuel, fiber, building material and medicine, right? And the bonus would be when you grow hemp, Near cannabis crops that are meant for high THC for hashish, um, they would cross-pollinate, reduce the THC levels, and then those products would garner you know less money in a prohibition market because those those profits that were coming back from these prohibition markets, mostly Europe, were uh, you know funding the Taliban, and funding IEDs that were killing our soldiers so I thought man this is bonus this is a no-brainer well that's,
0: that's a brilliant idea though to, <laughs> to where it's like the very thing that's going to generate your resources is going to like choke out your enemy's resources that's yeah that's exactly. some baller shit that's why you guys got paid so well <laughs> yeah well I got laughed at you know and uh they thought <laughs> it was kind of Pete ish you
1: know and uh, they're uh, like next so they next they weren't uh, having it No, no. But uh, you know what? In their defense, you know, we weren't as far along in the conversation around cannabis as we are today on an international scale or even on a U.S. scale. Right. Back then, I think we maybe had 12 or 13 states that had medical cannabis, whereas today we have 37 states over, you know, 2 thirds of Americans have access to medical cannabis today. And um, hey, most
0: of the shifts seem has seemed to happen in the last like two to three years, really. Yeah, like there, there was like this tipping point, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, even people that are like the most staunch, you know, conservative, prohibition-minded people are kind of like, oh, ah, now cannabis is cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, and they I think they recognize kind of the inevitability of it, you know, and uh-huh. and I think what's what's unique about it is like once you know, your mom has a, a good experience with cannabis and maybe helps her, you know, through her uh, cancer treatment, or once a veteran says, you know, I've reduced my consumption of opioids and alcohol entirely to use only cannabis. And it's been a huge blessing in my life. Once people start seeing this and hearing these stories or having that own personal experience, mind changes real quick. Right. And, Absolutely. And, and, so I go a long well, way. And it definitely
0: did, you know. Even for me, because I had associated it with just like losers you know like in college yeah. i remember like the guy who was like the worst worker at work was the biggest pothead and i remember at like three in the morning us getting in an argument because he's not doing anything and he mm-hmm. but like he's he literally it was like a cliche he was sitting down while i was working telling me how cannabis helps him <laughs> and okay. i was like i'm gonna choke you right now but then okay. the more like actually it was through touring i'm i started meeting all these folks who are like high up in the music industry or high up in other industries and, and pot and cannabis is a part of their lives, but mm-hmm. they're like high achievers. And I was like, oh, I just happened to meet uh, a dude who's just not was kind of a loser at the time in his life. <laughs> you know, right, hopefully he, right, he right. came right. around right. It had nothing Here to do go, with man. cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> Look,
1: lots of losers use cannabis. You right. know, cannabis doesn't necessarily <laughs> make you a loser, right? <laughs> exactly.
0: Lots of losers drink wine and whiskey, and then there's high achievers that do as well. Uh, exactly. But so you, you have this brilliant idea, which honestly, like here, I've never heard that piece of the story before. And that mm-hmm. like thinking about the strategy behind that is amazing. It gets shot down, but does, d- is that kind of like the oh, seed yeah. that got planted for you?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, that was it, especially, so especially, you know, because I recognized very, very early on that there were first and foremost military applications of cannabis uh, secondarily, I recognized that the prohibition of cannabis had been so deleterious and so destructive on American society, especially within communities of color. Yeah. Um, when I learned that the uh, you know prohibition was really originally directed at the Mexican population. Oh, man. <laughs> <Can> <laughs> you you, know, would you that mind guy. doing like a, a, quick, uh, yeah, a sure. quick overview
0: just for listeners who may not be familiar with that? Part of yeah. yeah. So, as uh,
1: I'll, I'll hit both of those first and foremost, in terms of military applications, you know, the U.S. government, uh, to be specific, the Department of Health and Human Services, on behalf of the Food and Drug Administration, holds a patent on cannabinoids, especially CBD, right? Cannabidiol to wow. serve as a neuroprotectant, anti inflammatory, and an antioxidant, right?
0: Wow, I did not yeah. know that.
1: Right. And so, you know, having been a commander of a, of troops who have lost their lives due to traumatic brain injuries or who suffer significantly today because of traumatic brain injuries, um, the fact that we're not researching cannabis to provide neural protection, to reduce inflammation after a TBI and, 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 and to prevent uh, oxidation after a traumatic brain injury is just unacceptable to me right? I know that there's a way to apply this plant in a way that we can mitigate and treat traumatic brain injury. Uh, we, uh, we created a, a strategy to do that called the Athena protocol, right? Which really proposes the use of non-impairing cannabinoids, such as CBD for soldiers in combat to maximize neuroplasticity, uh, and neuroprotection, as well as to, 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 you know, um, uh, to use as an anti-inflammatory immediately after a suspected
0: traumatic brain injury or concussion right so now, i are think using that at at the moment or that's just no. something you have developed, you have no. developed okay no
1: the, the dod can't spell cbd right now okay I, well that's part of this,
0: I, I know it doesn't later want to as we about. get to that that's part of what you advocate for, uh, so for sure. right now and spend a lot of your energy. Uh, but, yeah. and so also just the history of, uh, prohibition being yeah. centered in, in, in racism, in racism. Uh, towards, uh, Mexicans. And also then now we see this compounding effect as it's, it's mm. disproportionately affected communities of right. color. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it
1: worked like really this. well to, to, uh, oppress Mexicans. Um, and, and, and then you know it works equally as well. We have seen uh, through history and data that that is is a great tool for oppressing uh, the black community and just poor community in general, right? the right. the unique The unique and beautiful smell of cannabis is something that has been uh, you know for police officers for a very long time a great excuse to throw people up against the wall and say you smell like you're doing something Ill- illegal thankfully things are changing right and that's no longer uh really a reason to be arrested um but
0: luckily a friend of mine who's on kansas city pd that's what he was saying he was part of the drug enforcement task force Mm -hmm. and he was like we we don't mess with weed at all like he's like we have bigger fish to fry and i think more and more i think even law enforcement is coming around to see that it could be a good treatment and hell might help with some of the ptsd and and curb some of the the systemic issues that are are there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I keep turning the conversation away from (laughs) from your perspective. No, 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 no. It
1: it all intersects, you know, because like, you know, I, I, so I, I, the reason that it irked me so much that this was directed at the Mexican population is because Mm -hmm. I grew up in a Mexican household, right? My stepfather is Mexican. My stepfather was a Mexican cop you know well mexican american i should say he was born in the united states but you know his enti- his his parents came from mexico directly um and and he worked in in the in the sheriff's department in california where i live and um you know so i grew up and was embraced by that community right my community was 95 my high school was 95% mexican and uh i was really embraced by that community and so it really pissed me off As a guy who's serving the country to recognize that, uh, you know, this, the prohibition of this plant, which I had found was really helping people, um, had been used to oppress entire communities. And so, you know, 87 years of prohibition, uh, people have been held down for a hell of a long time. And, you know, I'm committed to the re-legalization of cannabis in the United States.
0: And what was Uh, the name of the guy uh, who spearheaded that? Uh, yeah, so the whole the- oh, so do with- like one part Correct. racism, one part capitalism in a way. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, greed I capitalism, I'm I a mean, capitalist, but <laughs> right. I mean, at the end of the day, Maybe that's it's just a greed. Maybe greed. Greed. Yeah, that's it's, a better way it's, to say it.
1: That's a better way to put it, right? Um, because capitalism is working great for cannabis. Just ask yes, Oklahoma. Yes, absolutely. You know? <laughs> or just ask, uh, just ask <laughs> Colorado, you know, who's putting like $250 million a year into their, their coffers due to uh, taxes, you know. Yeah, on, capitalism's capitalism
0: off there
1: <laughs> yeah for sure um so so let's talk a little bit about the history right take you back to 1920 right when when we have the uh, prohibition of alcohol takes place mm-hmm. right that lasts for 12 years from 1920 to 1932 um you know it didn't stop the production certainly didn't stop the consumption of alcohol but it did create, You know, a huge criminal network, the mafia uh, really thrived during that time and was able to to, um, grab a a serious foothold on the American criminal um, tapestry that we had at the time. So it really increased it. In 1932, we uh, repealed prohibition of alcohol. And because what it, that meant, it was working so well <laughs> right exactly no, this is not working everyone's drinking and you know the difference between alcohol prohibition and cannabis prohibition though was the prohibition of alcohol was the where it was really levied was on to those who were manufacturing the product yeah. right so that's why you see the the pictures of the old uh Prohibition enforcement police, you know, breaking open casks of beer and letting it flow down the street, all that. But you don't really see, you know, uh, people who were drinking getting arrested because they were drinking. You know, they may be sent home because because the people who were doing the enforcement were also drinking. So it's not really a big, you know. Um, And it only lasted for twelve years, right? But the organization. That had been developed for uh, the for enforcing that prohibition was run by this gentleman. I shouldn't say gentleman. This bastard, total racist, racist. Uh, a guy named Harry J. Anslinger, right? And Harry J. Anslinger was uh, this uh, federal officer. And after 32, he recognized that the budget for the big organization that had been created had just gone straight down because you know, we're no longer enforcing alcohol prohibition. So he gets this great idea to enforce the, you know, prohibit something else and enforce that really militaristic, militaristically. Um, And so he goes towards cannabis, right? I'll remind you that in 1937, cannabis was the second most prescribed medicine in the American pharmacopeia.
0: That's right.
1: You would have found it. Any pharmacy across the country, it was being made by American pharmaceutical companies like Eli Lilly and others, um, and it was widely used. And uh, the doctors and the the American Medical Association used it, you know, to great effect to treat everything from uh, colic in babies to PMS in women to, uh, you know, chronic pain and and other uh, mental issues, the same stuff that we kind of use it for today. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, Mr. Anslinger, uh, who hates Mexicans says, you know what, we're gonna prohibit marijuana, right? Right. So he uses this term that Mexicans had applied to the plant in terms of a kind of a term of endearment Mm -hmm. uh, as they were bringing it into the country, you know, stealing our jobs, Uh, working in the fields and and doing other manual labor things. Um, And I say that sarcastically. um, But but they, they bring this product in, they're using this for medicinal reasons and also recreational reasons. And so he decides to criminalize this. He connects with, this is where it gets really gross, right? So he connects with Uh, William Randolph Hearst and the Hearst family, right? And so you're probably familiar with the Hearst Corporation today. They run most media in the United States and much of it around the world. Um, William Randolph Hearst had a huge amount of interest in the timber industry, right? He had his own timber sources and he would make that into paper, which he would then print his papers on, right? So this, they started to use what was called yellow journalism to denigrate marijuana and cannabis. And, and especially those who used it, right? Uh, this is the period where you also start to see movies like reefer madness and other propaganda films to denigrate marijuana and, and and tell your kids about the dangers of marijuana. Um, and then uh, they get funded heavily by the likes of DuPont Chemical and other groups who had learned that you could make plastic out of petroleum products, right? And because it's simultaneously we had learned that you could make um composite materials and plastics
0: out of hemp. Right. Okay. So this Which is where it kind of where to that, even your yeah. an idea of growing hemp in Afghanistan, the multiple yeah. multiple applications that it that could have been. It's a powerful yeah. uh multifaceted plant.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so and we'll talk, let's talk a little bit about hemp and, and, and marijuana, the differences between the two hemp is an industrial product. The definition is that it's flower has 0.3% THC or below, right? It could never get you, couldn't get you high. Um, but it does have high amounts of cannabidiol, which is another, uh, cannabinoid in the plant, but hemp has been grown on this continent since the arrival of settlers. You know, in the earliest, earliest uh, you know days in the history of this uh, the continent that that we came to and settled on, um, you could pay your taxes in hemp. Uh, hemp was used for making materials to include, you know, clothing and ship sails and the ropes that would tie our ships up and just everything. You know, the first, uh, the 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 first the Declaration of Independence was um was written on hemp paper and hemp paper was just you know widely available
0: um so these companies see you know that hemp could overtake what they're trying to develop correct is a core of this piece
1: Correct. So they start to not only fund this message, but also begin to spread the word about this message through yellow journalism, and through lobbying and things of that nature. Uh, they got one doctor uh, to come in and say how bad cannabis was, or how bad marijuana was. And, uh, you know, the Congress just did, they, they went for it. You know, he right. said, like, They they said, you know, they said things on the floor of the the U.S. Capitol, such as marijuana makes Mexicans look twice at white women. Marijuana makes darkies look or think that they are as smart as white people. And I'm quoting there. So please excuse that terminology because I hope it raises eyebrows. But those words were said in our Capitol in order to prohibit cannabis. And so that just infuriated me. And I knew that, that, that I had to do something to help uh, change the tide, right? My home state of California, the same year I threw my hat in the air, at West Point in 1996 was the first state in the country to legalize medical cannabis. Hmm. And since, you know, since then, you know, this, we had this big, like just change. It started to have the West coast, started changing Washington, Oregon followed, Nevada, certainly followed Colorado followed. And, you know, we've just started getting medical cannabis laws in place across the country. Um, And I and I wanted to be part of that. Right. I went back from Afghanistan to Paris and I began to read everything I could and watch every documentary I could. Uh, And then further on to Slovenia, I continued to watch and I was listening to podcasts. Um, uh, from from great podcasters who, who, who were talking only about cannabis legalization. Um, and I got a huge education just on the history of our own prohibition, the results of it, and, uh, you know, started to delve deeper into the community that was legalizing in the United States and in Europe. Right. So I, as you imagine this, I'm in Ljubljana, Slovenia for three and a half years, Uh, But on the internet, you know, I'm, I I kind of created a moniker for myself, the hemp colonel, so that (laughs) I could engage in, uh, in conversation online with folks about cannabis.
0: Because it's kind of bad for business as a colonel in the military, I imagine, to be an advocate for cannabis.
1: Oh my God, of course. You know, I mean, what I was doing would have probably been seen as, you know, uh, unbecoming of an officer and a gentleman. Um, and because I was, you know, directly engaging in a conversation about a law uh, in, in my country. But, you know, the last conversation I had in Slovenia as a diplomat was with the president of the country. And, and I, I shared with him some of my thoughts on cannabis. And I said, the next time we speak, you know, we'll be speaking about legal cannabis in your country. Um, and And, you know, I've had those conversations since then. So it's been pretty exciting that's amazing
0: well and that's what's so cool of hearing different people's stories uh Mm -hmm. with this podcast has been such a a privilege to hear hear different folks who have taken a step from one career track and then into a whole other you know environment yet finding that it was that original career track that maybe wasn't fully who they were trained Mm -hmm. them and prepared them for where they're at and that's what's so hearing you tell this story is it's such a fascinating thing where it's like I like learning and it's kind of watching, observing your life and hearing you tell some of the stories. Where now, now your tasks with traveling around and speaking to well, folks like high, way high up in the government, <laughs> all mm-hmm. the way down to like a local dispensary. Uh, but you're building these relationships in an advocate now for something that is that is changing people's lives in general. Sure. Um, what, what, are, what are maybe one or two of the key things, uh, key skills that you learn in the military that has helped you now as you are an advocate in cannabis?
1: Uh, well, I think, you know, the power of speech, uh, the power of bringing leaders together in rooms to talk about important subjects that, you know, previously were considered taboo. Um, you know, I got I I began to hone my skills in Slovenia because I had learned so much about cannabis. Uh, whenever general officers or ambassadors would come into the country or my own my own ambassador in the country, right, who's who's appointed by the president, um, I would begin, I would talk to them about cannabis. What was unique was that the uh, you know, in, in Slovenia, they are state partners with Colorado right so there's with the colorado national guard right there's this uh, program called the state partnership program that that uh took place after the fall of the wall in 89 where you had all of these kind of breakout satellite states and and uh uh, you know, free radicals essentially of, of countries trying to figure out who they are and where they're going. So, we all reached out as, as the US government, we reached out to them in the form of this state partnership program, meaning that, you know, Colorado National Guard is partnered with Slovenia. Hmm. Uh, other states are partnered with other countries and they train together, they uh, share information, they uh they've deployed together to afghanistan right colorado and and slovenia deployed together to afghanistan they i've seen signs
0: in the past where they talk about you know state partnerships and those kind of things but i had yeah. no idea it was to that i almost thought it was just one of those you know like oh, people no. slap a sign on shit and like give no, the key to a city in a real, way no. but it's like legit
1: Oh, yes, the real deal, for sure. I mean, you know, I had two Colorado National Guardsmen working for me the entire time that that I was in Slovenia. The adjutant general of the Colorado National Guard came out regularly. And so it was fascinating because while I was there, what happens? Colorado legalizes for adult use of cannabis, right? It's a big deal. And everyone wanted to talk to the generals about it when they would come in especially me and so I would <laughs> always bring up the conversation you know and you know once you get past uh, the giggle and the pop pun you know and, and and maybe a little bit of reefer madness then I could start talking to them about facts and so like once
0: they stop saying so like if you smoke a joint you may die right and yeah. once you get yeah, past yeah, yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> exactly i mean and so what i found
1: was you know every you know we've been brainwashed for such a long time and it's so easy to repeat you know just say no you know just say no to this illegal drug but you know have a drink hey, on Dare me
0: worked right it yeah it, it right? did It's
1: really phenomenal uh <laughs> information operation that, that we put on you know everyone knows what our brain on drugs looks like
0: exactly right it's a Friday. <laughs> the gateway. The gateway. Exactly. It, it gave us really good ironic T-shirts. Now that's what. It, for sure. It for us. sure. Anyways. Anyway, <laughs> I'm a dare graduate
1: myself. Me too. Um, <laughs> <you know. laughs> But anyway, so w- w- I, I was always the one who was eager to kind of like I'll I'll, st- I'll start a conversation, but I, I would start it at the very highest levels with general officers, with the president of a country, you know, with ambassadors. And I will never shy away from it. And I think that's one of the skills that I learned to, as a diplomat was to like the power of talking and the power of, you know, what I always try to do with folks is, is to try to spark and then capture their imagination, right? Tell them what the, you know, where we are right now and what the future could look like. Uh, with cannabis legalization. Uh, I, I speak to this specifically about the veteran population, right? And so my whole goal in life is to get the Department of Defense to buy my weed. That's pretty yeah. much it. That's <laughs> the reason I'm here. No, uh, I'm you,
0: you really have honed that skill because, you know, the, the short time, I think we know each other, maybe two years, you know, but mm-hmm. I have found myself on multiple occasions now sharing your vision and your story to other veterans, you know, whether it be like the sauna at the gym or, you know, out at dinner somewhere, when they share some of the things they're going through, I catch myself like, Hey, you know, you, you have this powerful ability to cast vision for people. And obviously for you, it, it, like you've dedicated now your whole life to it. Uh, Your, your whole family's like all in and like, in sacrificing for this thing that as you build it and grow, But that is a what was there anything in particular that helped you develop that vision casting skill? Was there a mentor? Was there a book or was it just fucking doing it? (laughs) Yeah, no, I I would say one of my one
1: of my mentors um, who sadly passed away from ALS, which could have been very effectively treated through cannabis. Um, We we know this now, but I uh, when I was the army attache in Bosnia. Um, I had a colonel who was my boss. He was the defense attache, right? So he's up over me. He was my mentor. He taught me everything about being a foreign area officer, international military diplomacy. And so, you know, I I was serving in Bosnia, which if you you recall was, you know, had suffered a war in the mid nineties was kind of cobbled together now with three disparate uh, groups right the Serbs, the Bosniaks and the Croats in Bosnia. And so um, you know he, I watched him masterfully craft visions of what the future could be like for such a complex country, right I also I also served in uh, Belgium right so belgium nato ally everyone's like oh belgium they're just chocolate and beer no well belgium right. that's all i thought was beer i, I just no, way, my head. <laughs> <laughs> no 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 so, i mean you know you have uh, you have the the flemish and the French-speaking parts of Belgium, right? And so you have entire regions where the signs will all be – actually, all signs in Belgium have to be in French and Flemish. But if you're in a Flemish region, they people come in and they, they spray paint off the French. If you go into a French-speaking region, they'll spray paint off the, the Flemish. And okay. so – you know, I've been in the middle of, of numerous places where there are uh, forces that are kind of um, diametrically opposed to one another, but jammed together, right? So in order to get them to live together peacefully, you have to kind of create this picture for them of uh, of what a peaceful future could look like. Um, so you, you know, were so-
0: mentored in vision casting to use words to literally hold countries together. Mm-hmm. Like that I, I at least I, watched, I great leaders do
1: it. I watched great <laughs> leaders do it and I tried to mimic them uh, in, in every chance that I can to include General yeah. Allen, right? To, who, right? who I sat behind and watched try to keep together 50 nations in a coalition to bring peace and stability somehow to a very complex country of Afghanistan. Right, so I sat behind or next to, or wrote talking points for all of these people, um, and and that's what I try to do within within cannabis in the United States, right? So, well, um, that's what's
0: fascinating about the yeah. military to me. I grew, up, you know, as we said before, I grew up uh, next to Fort Riley, a military town. Uh, it was just mm-hmm. our whole culture was surrounded by military. I've I've had the privilege of having a lot of friends who have served. All that uh, in what what is unique about that environment is you have I've, I've seen, I've, you know, at poker nights, you've seen not, you're sitting next to someone who's like a staunch conservative, you know, all the cliche things and someone who's incredibly liberal, all the cliche things all together. But there's this brotherhood where they've they figured out how to work as a unit and, and it, it lasts way beyond just even going to war together and even serving mm-hmm. together uh, where they're lifelong friends uh, throughout all of it. Uh, right. And that seems to be such a powerful lesson that that uh, that you're you're kind of walking into. I know even in your bio, you you mentioned how you live on the line, right, of Missouri, where it's now getting legalized in Kansas, where it's like they're like, oh, what the fuck? Marijuana. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> man. You know?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. So I do. I tell people that all the time. I live in the center of the country on the border of cannabis legalization and complete and total prohibition, there right? I live in, so I, as you know, I live in Platte City, Missouri. I mean, you know, we can we can uh, see the Missouri River from here. Once you cross the Missouri River, uh, you go into Fort Leavenworth. You know, for when I go into Fort Leavenworth, I'm immediately a criminal. Um, And 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 more than that, more importantly, is that my brothers and sisters who served the country, who decided to stay and live in Kansas, they are total criminals if they access cannabis and they really don't have access to cannabis unless they go to Colorado and purchase it legally there and then transport it illegally back into Kansas. And and that's got to change. Right. I mean, veterans are being punished across the country uh, when, you know, perhaps they're a legal medical cannabis patient in one state and have been able to pull away from opioids and alcohol and and a bunch of dangerous chemicals. Uh, But when they take that medicine with them to say Alabama, Mm -hmm. they ain't nothing but a felon and they are going to jail. Right. And so that's that has got to change because you know when they're they're using a plant that is incredibly safe very effective probably our oldest medicine like our species has evolved with this plant and that and that and that evolution for the plant by the way has has increased through prohibition in a beautiful way that I always love to talk about but um when when they're using that to great effect, and then they go somewhere else and they're highly criminalized and, and, and put in cages, that that doesn't stand for me, right? I just can't I cannot abide by that at all. So, you know, one of the big things that I took from all of the time working with NATO and Bosnia and Belgium and all of these you know, crazy, disparate places, Was that the power of an alliance and a coalition is so strong, and so I go a long way to try to build coalitions and alliances of people and and groups that that can say this effectively, right? To say that military veterans need to have access to medical cannabis now. I reach out to you know I partner very closely with. The former Adjutant General of the Kansas National Guard, right? A two-star Air Force general, a guy named Major General Todd Bunting. He and I, we roll side by side all the time in the state capitol, in Topeka. Uh we we were together side by side in the prohibition
0: state we're fighting for it. <laughs> yeah,
1: dude. Absolutely. I was really proud of You know, last year, um, medical cannabis passed the House of Representatives in Kansas. By like seventy percent, something like that. I mean, a huge amount of support by those state uh, representatives. I grew
0: up in Kansas, and so you know, it's still baffling to me. (laughs) Yeah, one
1: of one of my favorite moments was when uh, General Bunting and I, who's retired now, um, General Bunting and I, we approached a state representative named Mike Dodson. Uh, Mike Dodson. Was Lieutenant General Dodson when Second Lieutenant Scatini showed up at Fort Riley, Kansas, as a tank platoon leader? Wow! Um, and and I approached him in the Capitol with General Bunting, and we chatted. And I said, "Hey, sir, I want to let you know that the first cannabis plant that I ever saw belonged to you." And he says, "What?" <laughs> I was like, it's here. You don't recognize me, but, uh, it, you know, when I was a second lieutenant, you were the post commander. And the first thing we did when I got there is we went on a training exercise and I parked a bunch of tanks in the middle of this hemp field at night. Uh, you know, it was just wild hemp, the vestiges of our forefathers who grew it here previously. <laughs> and uh, I remember waking up in the morning and all my soldiers were like, sir, look where we are. And I'm like, yeah, we're right here on the map, you know. And they're like, no, look <laughs> around us. And we're surrounded by like eight foot tall hemp plants.
0: Oh, wow. And,
1: you know, not not being as educated on the plant as I am now, I was like, all right, man, back out slowly. You don't want to come up hot on the footpath <laughs> or anything, you know. And we did. But anyway, Gen- General Dodson thought that that was funny. And, and, and we chatted amazing. about it. But but more so, I told them about you know my own personal story with cannabis and how I believe that it has saved my life, and how it has saved thousands of veterans' lives across the country and helped people back away from uh, opioids and alcohol, which have led significantly to uh, the the extreme suicide crisis within uh, the veteran community in the United States. We all know that twenty two veterans a day will uh, decide to take their own lives. And, um, you know, I believe that cannabis can significantly reduce those numbers. And, uh, you know, that is my mission is is, is, is to help save my brothers and sisters lives, but also to put forth cannabis as this huge opportunity for the Veterans Administration who could really use a win, right? I mean, since I've been here, there have been five veterans commit suicide in the parking lot of the Kansas city VA because they could not get in for an appointment or they were refused treatment or something of that nature. That's got to change. Right. So I see it up close and personal and uh, you know, I believe right, right. So the VA could use a win. You know what I mean? Because it's the VA who ends up prescribing These pharmaceuticals, opioids to treat chronic
0: pain, which is far too too significant. If I, I may, I don't know the stat fully offhand, Mm -hmm. but my understanding is opiate abuse is one of the highest causes of death in America. Is that correct? it's like absolutely, absolutely. Over
1: seventy-five thousand Americans overdosed last year on an opioid.
0: That's crazy. And then Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding too is that there's been more veterans. Uh, we have lost to suicide uh, than in actual combat. Uh, combat, for sure. You oh. Look at Afghanistan or Iraq. Yeah. I mean, do the math, you know,
1: 22 a day. And, and we've been going at it for a while. Uh, you know, hmm. I, think the, I think the number is coming down slightly, but yeah. still uh, a veteran is, is twice as likely to commit suicide or overdose on an opioid than uh, a civilian who has not served. Right, that's an issue for me as a leader. That is an issue for me, and it should be an issue for all leaders. You know, General Bunting always tells people, and I agree with it entirely. One day, military leaders will be judged by what they did to to help curb the opioid crisis and help curb the suicide crisis in America. Um, And so, I I think I'm doing something uh, important for it. I think I'm doing something significant to try to elevate this conversation with leaders. Through leadership and, and, and through history, you know, not to mention with with a grand vision of what the future could look like with with full adult use legal cannabis in the United States, um, as well as a really high end medical cannabis program for the veteran community. I'm trying to set the VA up to be the hero here, right? Uh, they because. You know, the VA, most people laugh at me when I say the VA should be a part of this. They're like, well, they screwed everything else up. Why would we let them take over this? <laughs> but that, you know, of any federal organization, the VA and the DOD are, are the ones who are most perfectly aligned to help forward what I consider a revolution in medical affairs, hmm. right? And I'll tell you why. The VA has the largest patient population in the country. Nine million veterans get their, uh, their health care from the VA. The VA has 150 hospitals across the country and in the territories. The VA has 1200 medical clinics and the VA has a population that wants access to medical cannabis. Like 95% of veterans say that they would like the option to use cannabis right? They want to talk about it. And the VA is missing a huge opportunity, especially as veterans are starting to make this transition from opioids into medical cannabis, Mm. right? Right now, they should be capturing that feedback, talking to each one of the veterans, asking them a series of questions. What kind of cannabis do you use? How often do you use it? How much of it do you use? What way? Do you administer it, right? And start capturing all of that feedback and following. Thank you. But I don't think the VA thinks so because I have poked poked my finger in the chest of two secretaries of the VA. They were former, one was active uh, and then the other was uh, a former uh, secretary of the VA. And each of them comes back with like the most ridiculous, uninformed, uneducated uh, reefer madness that I've ever heard. And so it makes it very frustrating. But I have spoken face to face with the VA director of research and development, mm-hmm. uh, and VA doctors, wherever I can grab them. You know, when I go and do my VA visit, I tell them You're all the I throw it out there. I'm like, I, you know, in the morning, I'm going to have a a coffee with cannabis in it. Uh, Maybe in the afternoon, if I'm feeling some pain from standing all day, I may take a hit of a joint and then I'll have a tincture at night, maybe, you know, so kind of walking them through the ways that I'm using it. Um, And then they just look at me and go, okay. And they write one word down on their little sheet, cannabis. (laughs) You know, and
0: that's the thing The most brilliant leaders I think have humility and they lead through questions like they're wanting to understand what's actually working and they want to set aside their biases. And that's the problem. Like you keep butting up against, um, Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. your, with your understanding of the power of words, right? Your passion, uh, to see this healing happen for the veteran community. Is there one particular story that sticks out to you where you've seen such a huge difference? Uh, yeah with absolutely. someone walking away from opiates and oh my God implementing yeah, implementing that.
1: Yeah I mean and locally too, you've been to my house yeah across the street from me uh, when I, I moved in this house six years ago uh, yeah, about six years ago, my neighbor across the street is an army veteran uh, came out of the army with a uh, diagnosis of PTSD from the things that he had seen and then became a prison guard. Went into uh, the prison system, you know, as a guard and was attacked and beaten, you know, um, in in a horrific way. Came out with injuries and more significant PTSD. When I met him, he was a raging uh, alcoholic, um, had, had issues with his family all the time and was well armed. Um, after we legalized cannabis in the state of Missouri, I helped him get a medical cannabis and access to cannabis, uh, and to great effect. And then we got him the license to grow cannabis legally in his home, uh, because Missouri allows for that. And now when I see him one, he drinks nothing anymore. Uh, and, uh, he says, you know sir you saved my life you absolutely saved my life he shows me his garden uh and it's just so proud and it's just beautiful and blossoming uh he makes he makes tinctures and edibles for his wife's mom so his mother-in-law we <laughs> improve that relationship and then his wife will grab me by the shoulders and go you saved my marriage this changed oh. everything Thing. yeah yeah so that's it's huge, huge right? man i mean i see it all the time that's just one story that's right. just, i mean my own personal story i was heavily heavily uh you know dependent on alcohol i used a lot of alcohol i was paid to drink alcohol as a diplomat you know i had a, a start <laughs> lunch on
0: that's and, funny because i i laugh so hard because i i feel like in the music industry it's kind of like that as well it's it's yeah. part of the 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 networking if you will culture yeah of building relationships (laughs) yeah in the in the the
1: military diplomatic community we joke that we are uh sacrificing our waistline and our liver for our country
0: but that's a friend uh, who was in russia uh building relationships and uh and he said like if you didn't get drunk with the people you were with you're not wouldn't even trust you like you have to it's part and he didn't drink before that (laughs) anyways (laughs) your own your own story Your you're walking through uh, that same kind of addiction. For sure,
1: for sure, for sure. But, you know, I mean, cannabis for me has just been a huge blessing in my life um, and helped me to pull back away from, uh, you know, a a pretty wide range of pharmaceuticals that I had been prescribed in the military, as well as, you know, the alcohol that uh, was was never really contributing much to my life. Uh, except for you know a culinary additive now, which it is and still remains. By the way, I, I, I don't like to denigrate alcohol because I recognize what a cultural ingredient it is and, and how important it is to our society in some ways. But for me, cannabis is just a—it's a game changer, and uh, I'm really I, I, I'm proud of myself actually for making the change because you know what—if um, I had just stuck to my just say no mantra. Um, I, I would probably still be drinking very heavily today and, you know, turning my nose up at people who, who are using cannabis and saying, oh, you know, they just want to get high. It's not the case, you know, so.
0: What a incredible journey, though, you've had. And I know this is just a very, you've just shared just little snippets of a even much larger story uh, that mm-hmm. you're living out. But uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to hear from from the idea of hemp in a strategic use in a war zone <laughs> to mm-hmm. traveling the world advocating for really the the salvation of people's lives uh through through this plant it's it's amazing man um and unfortunately yeah. i i feel like we could keep going on and on unfortunately i'm, I'm about yeah. to wrap up but i just had two more questions i wanted to hit And then after that, I'll have you share uh, where they can connect with you so they can learn more and more about the story and maybe figure out how to get involved if they'd like to. Uh, But the last two questions out of Live and Create, Uh, Mm -hmm. right now, how would you define living a great life?
1: Uh, You know, for me, it starts with having, a you know, leading a purpose-driven life. I, I hope I've described for you what my purpose is. I think uh, you know very well. that's a, that's on that's on like the the professional and the actually we didn't even really get into the professional the business that that's business true we didn't even hit it.
0: Well, I'll just have to have you back one day when I can catch yeah, you let that one because <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, I, the way we were going I'm like there's so much to that I know of your story and I imagine you could have just a series of each story of life change you know but yeah. but yeah so but defining so, your purpose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Defining your purpose, it's got to be something that really, uh, you know, is meaningful to you. And that gives you, um, you know, the drive to get up every single day. Um, having friends and family uh, close to you and around is is part of, you know, the way that I focus on uh, having a meaningful life. And, uh, you know, Travel, exercise, all, all of that are just incredibly part, important parts of my day uh, and, and I think lead to success in you know, everything that I do uh, from the activist side as well as to the business side. And also, you know, never forgetting, you know, this is supposed to be fun, you know, having fun in this life and, and, and doing something that makes you smile once in a while uh, is, is a really important and key factor to it. You know, so don't take yourself too seriously.
0: That's awesome, man. And for the last question, I, I think of entrepreneurship as art in a lot of ways, and mm-hmm. you're creating something out of nothing. And I know, uh, yeah, we'll have to do a whole other one where you just get to talk yeah, about man. 360. Um, and what you're doing uh, behind the scenes in the cannabis industry to help people really like running support um, for all these great things happen across the country. But right now out of that idea, how would you define creating great things?
1: You know, I, I kind of look at this as creating legacy. You know, I, I try to craft the future that I would be proud for my children to inherit. You know, I try to create a better future for them in mind. And, uh, you know, I think, that's a, I think that's a good way to go through life. You know, that that's really the idea is just the idea that we're creating legacy. And I want to create something that that my kids would be proud of that they'll, you know, look back one day and go, yeah, my dad did that. Or my dad was part of that, you know, that that's, what's important, I think. And, you know, I think you can always judge the success of, uh, of whatever you're doing by the look on your spouse's face. So (laughs) I I use that quite a bit as well.
0: (laughs) Smart man on that one. <laughs> That's awesome. Exactly. Well, uh, let everyone know how they one can connect with you, and then find out mm-hmm. more about the activist side and also Harvest three hundred and sixty.
1: Sure. So, um, so I'm uh, real name on all platforms: Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all of that stuff. I'm sort uh, Instagram. You know, and start, starting to use social media a little bit more. Um, You can also find me uh, on any of the boards that I serve, for example, the Kansas Cannabis Coalition, which is the leading activist organization in Kansas working towards uh, uh, cannabis reform in that state. And I think that we will get it over the line this year. Uh, You can find me on the board of the Veterans Cannabis Project, uh, which is out of Washington, D.C., and working to legalize cannabis on a federal level on behalf of veterans. Um, and you can find my company uh, on the professional side is harvest 360 and you can find this at harvest 360.co uh, we are a full service cannabis consulting firm. We have written and won licenses for clients across the country to include some of the hardest States in the country, like Virginia um, and, and Missouri, right? So we've won licenses in Virginia, Missouri, Michigan, Uh, We're writing in New Jersey now, and uh, oh, in Illinois, we wrote 27 perfect licenses in Illinois. Uh, We focus very heavily on four areas within the cannabis industry, social justice, economic impact, sustainability, and health and wellness. Those are the four areas. Those are kind of the box that I dance in, in terms of cannabis. And I figure like, if we're doing something that positively impacts each one of those, or even one or two of those, then we're, we're going in the right
0: direction. I love it. Well, thanks for making the time, man. I appreciate
1: it. Absolutely. Take care Miguel. We'll talk to you soon. Okay.
0: Thank you for listening to the live and create podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe and leave a comment or a review. The
1: live and create podcast.